guests this week are Stephen Bodson and Carla Dagger from Red Intelligence. And we are super excited to talk to both of them about two topics that I think until recently, maybe we would have treated as unrelated, uh, but both near and dear to, to, I think, all of our collective hearts uh, on this podcast. One of the topics being the Venezuelan debt and the other being the debt for nature aspects of the recent uh, Belize uh, debt restructuring. And uh, I say those are unrelated in part because until recently, I think they would have been um, for us. And so we want to talk to both Stephen and Carla about uh, about um, each of these separately, and maybe we'll divide the podcast into those two halves. But our goal is to get a sense of where we are, uh, first with Venezuela, where there's been a lot going on at a sort of low simmer uh, that we're, we're really in- interested to talk about, and then transition to the, the discussion of Belize and there. I guess the link is that there's been a ton of writing recently, including a big piece in the FT about the environmental damage underway uh, in in Venezuela and and maybe the need for some thinking about how to take steps to address that in the context of a restructuring. But with that lead in, I want to really welcome both Stephen and Carla. We follow these two situations in Venezuela and Belize, in part because we're fascinated in the debt restructuring aspects of them, but we know limits, and me too and I at least, are limited in our knowledge of what's going on on the ground. And we couldn't think of better people to talk to than Stephen and Carla. So welcome to both of you. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's really exciting to be here. For having us. So that was a long-winded intro, Stephen, as a way of teeing up a really simple first question, which is, what the heck is going on with all of the creditor collection efforts these days uh, targeting Venezuela? I think Crystal X occupied a lot of attention for a long time and then has been at a slow but increasingly vigorous simmer for a while. Can you just kind of tell us where we are on that? Well, yeah, I can give the shortest possible version. I have in my list well over 150 lawsuits that relate to Venezuelan debt, and I am not going to go down them on the podcast. Uh, But the short of it is that uh, Venezuela stopped paying its debt in 2017. um, And when the interim government, the so-called interim government came in, uh, they basically started a process of fending off lawsuits that would come and try to collect in any way, whether that was um, a lawsuit that would just convert a bond into a U.S. judgment or a judgment in some other jurisdiction, or whether it would actually be able to collect something, because there is some Venezuelan money sitting around in bank accounts around the world. Um, and so they started trying to fend these off. And over time, their ability to do that has been weakening, um, you mentioned the Crystal X case. That's definitely the biggest and most dramatic one because Crystal X, as many listeners probably know, is uh, it was a small Canadian mining company. It won a gigantic arbitration award and started pursuing that award in U.S. courts. Uh, it eventually won judgments that's allowing it to uh, foreclose on PDVSA property. PDVSA is Venezuela's state oil company, 
So it won these judgments that said Pedavesa is an alter ego of the state. So it can, even though the, it, the state owes it a billion dollars, it can foreclose on Pedavesa property in the United States. It's now trying to get a foreclosure sale on Pedavesa's big property in the US, which is Citgo. Um, because Crystal X won that, a bunch of other creditors have also shown up in Delaware, where Citgo is nominally based. Um, the, a whole lot of judgments have now been registered there. A couple of bondholders that have won judgments in New York um, over the 2034 bonds, the 2018 bonds have shown up. Um, Northrop Grumman, um, this shipbuilder that's owed money from a 1998 rehab project on some Venezuelan vessels, they're still owed some money over that. So they've gone and registered their judgment in Delaware. Saint-Gobain, which is a French plastics company, has registered a judgment. And there are probably others that I'm forgetting. So yeah, a lot of people are showing up, um, getting ready to feast on Citgo if there's ever a foreclosure sale. But there isn't because US sanctions are stopping it. And we don't know when that will end. Uh, the US is being very dodgy about its plans. But for now, uh, it's clear that there can be no sale without permission from the US Treasury. And the US Treasury is not giving permission just yet. So Stephen, if I may, can we get into this a little more since you're one of the people who understands this situation best? A, why are creditors continuing to expend enormous efforts or legal fees in this very complicated situation that doesn't seem like it's yielding anything? There are US sanctions. Uh, it's not even clear who the relevant government of Venezuela is for purposes of this suit. The U.S. courts uh, are recognizing one government that doesn't actually have, have control of Venezuela. And then this, there's this other government that actually has control of Venezuela. And then there are all these creditors. If all of the creditors get an equal share of the pie, then there's not going to be anything for anybody. So... I would think, oh, they just all sort of give up or come to some kind of agreement uh, to hold things in abeyance until one can figure out who the government is. But yet instead, there is this rush to Delaware. Do you have a sense of why everybody's chasing uh, without any sort of coordination? Well, yeah, the easy answer, which you taught me, I think, is that sovereigns don't have a bankruptcy system. Right, um, and so there is no rational court where everyone can go and give their claim and um, <laughs> and have it have a helpful restructuring process that uh, will give the maximum benefit to all of the creditors. So instead, there is a rush to to the courthouse. And normally, um, another thing that I think I probably learned from you was is that um, there would normally be collective action clauses that would get um, put into action and there would be something, a kind of quasi bankruptcy um, restructuring process out of court. But in this case, that hasn't happened for a lot of reasons. Part of it is probably US sanctions, um, but basically even if there was some way to get permission to activate the collective action clauses, there's no one to negotiate with because on the other side of the, of the trade is 
the U.S. courts, like you said, are recognizing this pretty, um, it's sort of a fictitious government. I mean, it's a government that has very little staff. It has no territorial control of Venezuela. It can't really make any promises. It can't offer you know, equity for debt. If, 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 somebody, if a bondholder wants to take an oil field in exchange for its billion dollar claim, um, you know, Juan Guaido can't offer that, uh, regardless of the Venezuelan constitution or any other limits on, on that. He just doesn't have the ability to, to make these promises. So there's no one on the other side of the conversation. So bondholders have mostly just had to sit on their hands. And as a result, a few relatively nimble creditors, like these arbitration award holders and a couple of, of, of funds, have rushed into the courthouse ahead of the collective action clauses. They've gotten judgments. They're trying to register their claim in Delaware. Um, the judge there has been pretty skeptical about people just piling on the Crystalex claim. He says each new claim needs to prove that on certain dates there was actually an alter ego relationship and this is all very fact specific. And so he's basically making them jump through a lot of hoops. But eventually, if this goes on long enough, I'm sure other claims will end up on there because it's just a matter of time before someone else gets on the, on the bandwagon. And, um, and they get they might be able to get 100% collection where a bunch of other bondholders are sitting there waiting for years and eventually getting whatever they get. So, so Stephen, can, I, can I actually, one of the most interesting parts of this to me is the idea that we need to figure out whether a PDVSA is the alter ego of the government, you know, at the time each creditor arrives on the scene. And so these new cases are basically saying the Guaido team is also wielding excessive control over PDVSA. And it's got nothing to do with this long history of, you know, the using the company as a piggy bank. Um, it's really focused specifically on the relationship between the Guaido folks and the the company now. So can you can you just like, tell us that a bit? Because I think mm -hmm. how much control is being wielded. I mean, yeah. like my I would have thought like relatively little because they have no mm -hmm. control over anything but apparently, well, they, apparently I'm wrong. yeah well it's it is a it's a it's an interesting question and there hasn't been a huge amount of public information about it um you know the guaido government has some transparency it's certainly better than the maduro government in many ways but as far as its relationship with citgo and with its other the other companies that um that it controls, things have been a little bit weird. And so, yeah, like you said, there's one claim in particular, this one by some funds that have, you know, it's they're calling themselves ACL1 and a bunch of other funds like that, like just basically a bunch of letters and numbers. And it's, they're, you know, anonymous Delaware companies, but essentially they're bondholders. Um, they are, um, in their lawsuit in Delaware, they said that even if, Pedavesa wasn't an alter ego of the Maduro government on the relevant dates. Um, the Guaido government is also treating it as an alter ego. And it doesn't have much data, but one, the, one of the few points it makes is it quotes a Reuters story from a couple of months ago saying that the Guaido government is appointing politically connected insiders to the CITGO board um, we also ran an article at Red, basically looking at the resume of the current chairman of CITGO. And um, 
you know, it's, uh, I, I think that I don't really know that much about his political connections. I certainly have plenty of sources saying that he had political connections, but that's not on the resume. What's clear is that he's the son of a former PDVSA chairman from Venezuela, pre-Chavez. He definitely has uh, personal connections to the uh, Venezuelan opposition, and he has never run a big oil company before. He uh, doesn't have a huge amount of experience. Um, he does have a long, a long time of experience working in various industries, and they make a good claim that he is a um, qualified chairman for the company. So, you know, that's that's up for if I guess if that ever went to court, they could have that debate. Um, it just seems kind of weird, though. I'm like that argument sounds like the argument you, you've been you've been looting the company for of its resources for years. Like that's sort of classic alter ego argument. The argument that this guy's not qualified and he's a mm -hmm. political hack, that basically, to me, that sounds like saying every state-owned company in the world <laughs> yeah. is an alter ego. Sure. And and <laughs> it's I think it's pretty clear that the Guaido government is not looting it. I think the financial part, um, Sidco is a US company, it's being run. No, I haven't seen any accusations that that there's looting of Sidco happening. There have been accusations in Colombia of the Guaido government um, treating a state-owned company there pretty irresponsibly and setting up politically connected contracting, for example, um, that a relative of Leopoldo Lopez, who is this Venezuelan opposition politician, that a relative of his got some kind of contract. That's again, one of these fact-specific issues that hasn't been proved in court, and they definitely he definitely says that's not the case. Um, but there have been a lot of complaints, especially in Colombia. In the U.S., no, I, and I think you're completely right. It's it's a it sounds to me like a bit of a reach for this bondholder to claim that. But the bigger issue, I think, is that the Guaido government. Um, I think it puts them on warning that they need to be if if they are going to maintain control of these companies, they probably need to um, be a little bit more uh, transparent than they have been so far, because they certainly don't, they, they aren't entirely clear about their, about how they're running these things. So Mark is really the expert on alter ego in the state context, but even I know enough to think that th this is the one, one clear message in the alter ego veil piercing body of law is that running a company badly and irresponsibly <laughs> is not a basis uh, for getting the argument to work. So it's really, I mean, it's really interesting that they are, they are trying to do this incompetence by the Guaido folks um, typically does not work, of course, in the sovereign context. Uh, and Venezuelan context, maybe all bets are off. But that does lead to a question I wanted to ask that, uh, Stephen, I wonder whether you have gotten a sense of from your various conversations with all the people involved in this is, what is the US government doing in terms of managing the litigation? So normally, I would think the US government is going to try and stay out of something as complicated as this. But in this case, they can't really do that with a straight face since a significant portion of the reason we have this situation is that the US government uh, under the Trump administration uh, really complicated 
the possibility of doing a restructuring or um, making any of this work. And so you would think a responsible U.S. Treasury Department or U.S. State Department would send its lawyers to the state department to the courts in Delaware and say, look, judge, we screwed this up. We have uh, political reasons for uh, having screwed up this situation. And so put everything on hold uh, and we will help you work through this situation in a coherent fashion. Now, I'm just making this up <laughs> along the way, and uh, maybe maybe Mark will tell me to just shut up, or you will. But it does seem like I, I mean the U.S. government can't pretend that it wants no involvement, since it, it's the one that stopped the trading. Right. It's the one that recognizes the Guaido government that has no control as being the actual government. I mean, they. This whole situation has the U.S. government's involvement in it. It could step in and help the judge. Instead, this poor judge is stuck with this incredibly complicated uh, situation, well, and investors are getting yeah. screwed too. I mean, I have no great sympathy for them. But. So, so okay, I would never tell you to shut up. Um, I had, and but I think that the U.S. government, their way of helping this judge, is that they are promoting him to the appeals court, and they're getting him out of there. Um, <laughs> And um, he's going he, to, if he gets it confirmed, which is likely, uh, he, he'll be able to hand it on to some junior. Um, <laughs> but um, they, uh, yeah, so as far as that goes, I mean, everything you say makes sense. And we're living in a country where the Cuba trade sanctions now, are now going into their third generation. Um, sanctions policy is hard to roll back. And there were a lot of people telling me six months ago that, oh, yeah, we're hearing from Treasury that they're going to, you know, really rethink things in 2022. And Maduro is really ready to do a proper restructuring. He's hiring the financial advisors. We had a whole story about him shopping around for financial advisors. Um, we, have, uh, we have investors certainly chomping at the bit to, to sit down and have a real conversation about what to do. Um, Venezuela has gone through something like a structural adjustment already. So, you know, it's, it's just sitting there. I mean, it's waiting for, for investment. It's, it's, you, wouldn't, you couldn't find a place that's more primed for, for, um, for investment to come and, and reflate the, this, this collapsed economy. But, the, um, but yeah, you, you've got all these, all these people chomping in the bit waiting and um, you don't, have U.S. Treasury saying we're going to drop the sanctions, and we don't have them saying, "Okay, we're going to provide a license uh, for Maduro to to take part in a debt restructuring." And I just think that um, the smart money right now is that nothing changes in 2022 because of Florida politics. That there is a terror on the part of politicians that any opening to Maduro in Venezuela would cost the Democrats support in Florida. And I have no idea if that's true. I think there's evidence on both sides of that. Um, but that seems to be the, where the smart money is right now, is nothing happens this year because it's, it's people are just too scared. Well, nothing's happening in any other 
subject either. So I don't know why this one would be any different. Um, as we kind of move towards our break, can we shift gears a little bit? This might be a good time to talk about one of the other sort of weird proceedings that has always has been a real source of interest for me, although I confess I don't understand it that well, but there's property not technically belonging to the government, like real property in Florida, I think, that is the subject of this other proceeding involving Casa Express, a different creditor. Can you just sort of give us the brief intro to that and maybe explain whether we might see more more creditors try to take this type of approach? Yeah. Yeah. And also this whole constructive trust. So oh, don't, don't, complica- don't complicate it. <laughs> that that seems very good that. for an exam yeah, question. Yeah. Yeah. You guys, you guys are going to have <laughs> constructive trust stuff. I, I literally, I saw that in this lawsuit and said, I need to call me to and Mark and ask what the heck is a constructive trust. Um, and I did. Um, and someone else, I think, I, I think, I think that there, there are many people out there who can answer that question better than I can. But the, as far as Casa Express, yeah, it's incredibly interesting. This is a bondholder, pretty small. If I remember right, they have something like $20 million in bonds. But for some reason, they have just been the tip of the spear, the tip of the icebreaker on so many litigation strategies. They were the first ones to show up and sue in US federal court after the default saying, we didn't get paid, we're going to court. Um, And they uh, eventually won a judgment. They were among the first to to win a US federal court judgment saying that their bonds, sure enough, are in default and that they are owed a money judgment. But of course, the Venezuelan government doesn't have any money to give them um, and (laughs) wouldn't really have any good reason to give them money if it did. So, They've now gone to Florida, and there is a guy named Raul Gorin, who owns a television network in Venezuela and has gotten money out of Venezuela um, through alleged corruption. I don't know how much of his money is legitimate. I don't know if any of it or how much of it is corrupt, but his assets in Florida are currently frozen by the U.S. Treasury Department because he is a blocked person. He's one of these specially designated nationals whose assets get frozen in the United States. So he can't really do anything with it. It's sitting there in Florida. Um, actually, the, the Miami-Dade County was about to have a tax auction and sell off some of these incredibly fancy luxury properties. Uh, and then Casa Express showed up and it said that he stole the money from Venezuela to buy these properties. So those properties are kind of Venezuelan property. And this is where your whole constructive trust thing comes in. And you can explain that better than I can. But that this is essentially Venezuelan property. And they are going to, they've sued to seize this real estate in order to get paid. And they have served uh, papers on these real estate holding companies in Florida that own these properties. And it hasn't gone anywhere that I'm aware of so far um, since they served. I think that there was a very kind of pro forma response in the the court docket. And then I think that it uh, went into the usual kind of waiting period where I don't know if they're doing discovery or what, but it's, I I don't think there's been any other, any other action in that case. I, and, and just to abuse your time for one moment, they're, they're this, they aren't the first ones to go after this kind of asset. 
you know, there are also a bunch of other plaintiffs out there who are claiming that Venezuela is so in league with Colombian terrorists that they also have a claim against Venezuelan state assets. And they are also going after the assets of all of these different supposedly corrupt people whose assets are frozen in Florida and in other states around the United States, um, trying to seize those. And, and, and some of them have actually gotten paid. They've actually managed to get a bunch of money out of those. So it's not crazy. Um, we'll see what happens. And uh, you know, something that I've been really surprised by, I got to say, is that the Venezuelan, the Guaido government has never handed out litigation claims that it might have against theoretically corrupt people, uh, people who might have stolen money out of Venezuela. I've, I've talked to people who, who said that they would accept a litigation claim as a settlement for, for a, um, a debt owed by the Venezuelan state because they would rather go chase down this kind of stuff than wait indefinitely to get paid by Venezuela. Um, but well, I can't say people. I've talked to a person, <laughs> but um, and I don't know if that person was even telling the truth. But but yeah, this is something that the that the Guaido government could give out, and they haven't, and I don't know why. This is fascinating. I mean, the, 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 when I looked up this, the basic idea about constructive trust, I, at first I thought it was just completely loony, but it. it it is a theoretical possibility. I think the idea of the Guaido folks giving out a litigation claim, given that their own status seems so wonky and wobbly in terms of, I mean, they may be more mm -hmm. legitimate than Maduro, certainly seem more legitimate to me. Uh, on the other hand, they may not be as legitimate uh -huh. as a real government that comes into place after uh -huh. the current crooks are gone. And if the current crooks manage, like so many crooks around the world, to continue to stay in power by being uh, at least superficially a little less crooked, uh, then we really we have a complete disaster, which, uh -huh. of course, then come that takes us back to U.S. government and the State Department and Treasury in particular really need to take some responsibility for fixing this. But all of this does tell me that uh, we should go to break before getting too far into the weeds and then move things on to bothering Carla because I think that the situation in Venezuela on the environmental front is getting so bad that when we eventually have to deal with a real restructuring, which is going to be a nightmare given all of these claims that have had now multiple years to mature and have assets seized, oh, um, that, that we're gonna have to deal with the serious environmental problem. So if you guys don't mind, we'll take a quick break and then come back and talk about the environmental issues and perhaps a little bit about uh, the Belize deal. So Carla, if you don't mind, we're going to turn some of the questioning to you in this second half, although I hope Stephen will yeah. uh, step in periodically and help us along the way. Uh, but one of the aspects of Venezuela 
that is increasingly troubling is the enormous environmental damage that is being done, or at least the reports suggest that it's being done in Venezuela, that somewhere down the line is going to have to be repaired. And one of the places it will have to be repaired is in the context of a restructuring where you have the fund and the World Bank and all these international institutions presumably working to get things back uh, to some kind of normalcy. And we'll also have to deal with environmental protection efforts. So just I'm wondering about your sense of that before we go into talking about uh, Belize, where, again, you know, that that was an important part of the deal. Correct. So, um, you know, I haven't been on the ground, so I, I haven't seen the, the actual like scales of the environmental damage that is, is going on. But the, the recent uh, Financial Times article pointed out like a double threat. So there was a mining in the Amazon that the government has um, recurred to as um, you know, oil revenue has uh, fallen. Um, and then sort of the declining oil industry um, and the crumbling infrastructure, like dilapidated infrastructure um, affects the Caribbean coast as well. And so I guess the, the the solutions that environmentalists are proposing right now is sort of encouraging like sustainable projects that would allow, um, at least in the in the Amazon, which is in the Canaima uh, National Park, um, that would allow locals to, you know, find uh, an alternative source of of income um, to mining, right? Um, but yeah, going to to the restructuring aspect. Yes, this would these aspects and the the sort of cleanup and the reparations would definitely have to be considered. I know that um, in 2020, when Ecuador and Argentina were restructuring their debt and they were in, in those discussions, um, a lot of investors were were interested in incorporating um, ESG aspects, particularly with with regard to deforestation. Um, they, you know. They didn't end up being implemented. I think there must have been resistance from the government. Um, so yeah, that that would would also be another um, consideration in the Venezuelan restructuring. Uh, it's so, interesting. Oh, sorry, Carla, go ahead. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. I was just I just wanted to know what what Steve thought, just because he's more involved in the, the restructuring aspect in Venezuela. Well, I have seen a lot of this environmental destruction. Um, and yeah, there's a lot. And, and I think that it's important to remember that Venezuela is also a superpower from an environmental point of view. I mean, it's got a tremendous amount of fresh water. It's got the Orinoco River. It's got, um, you mentioned Canaima National Park with the highest waterfall in the world and some of the best tourism resources anywhere in South America and maybe anywhere in the world. Um, it's got the Caribbean coast. It's some of the really nicest beaches in the entire Caribbean. So there's an incredible payoff if they can protect and recover the environment along with the kind of feel good part of actually protecting the Amazon and uh, you know maybe helping, <laughs> helping protect some species from going extinct and so forth. There's actually economic value there. I mean, so I hear these, these um, 
optimistic uh, so hopes, I guess, for what might be uh, accomplished in the context of a restructuring. And uh, I have to say, I don't, I don't know how seriously I believe that the we're likely to see real investments in the environment. And I'm hoping you can, maybe one one outcome of this conversation will be that my skepticism is diminished a bit. I mean, Carla, can I ask you? your reaction, just sort of a gestalt reaction to the Belize restructuring and the blue bond, is, is this a, is it a big deal? Is it a tiny deal? Is it no deal at all? What, what should we be taking away from it? Um, I, I think it, it was significant in a few um, different aspects. So um, I think definitely in size, you know, they managed to buy back their super bond and cut their debt uh, by a significant amount. Um, I think this particularly um, sort of helps people get rid of the notion that these types of transactions are are limited to, to small amounts of debt like they had been in, in the past. Um, it also brought attention to the importance of the blue economy, um, which doesn't get us as much um, attention as, as, as the green economy, right? So there's been a lot of, of green bonds, sustainability bonds, et cetera, but not as many um, blue bonds, um, which are, um, their use of proceeds are, are focused on any sort of marine or, or water related um, projects. Um, and those that I see sort of as a subset of, of the green economy, right? But, but they haven't gotten um, the, same, the same attention. And then I think it was also significant in the sense that they they pulled this off despite how how complicated it, it was. You know, there were a lot of moving parts. There were many sort of back to back steps required, and just them doing this shows that it's it's possible um, to do it right if, if there's willing willingness and then the sort of backing of of these two um, large. Um, institutions, which, which are the uh, the Nature Conservancy and, and DFC. Um, so, Carla, if you don't mind my stepping in. So th this is, so I'm going to channel Mark's inner skepticism. Actually, he's not <laughs> so inner. He's sort of skeptical openly. But I, I, I think, given I have learned over time that his skepticism is often on the right track, you mentioned the two big institutions, the Nature Conservancy and the DFC. And if they are crucial to making this kind of deal work, then it seems like we won't be able to do very much of this because Nature Conservancy has been around forever. And, you know, they're great uh, in getting environmental easements, but giant bond restructurings, I, I don't. I don't see them being able to run the Sri Lankan bond restructuring, for example, or them having any interest in, uh, let alone capacity to deal with Hamas in Lebanon, which is the other restructuring that's uh, coming down. And as for the DFC, I mean, that element of this just seems a little bit wonky, not clear that that's, that, that part is ever going to work, including in this deal. So 
I, I am wondering what your view of, of these two aspects that you raised really is. I mean, if, if, those, if we need those things to work well, then, then maybe this is just a one and done. I, I see uh, why, why, you're, why you have this amount of, of skepticism. Um, you know, uh, I was just channeling Mark. No, I no, am, no. I'm an optimist. I, I, uh, <laughs> you know, that's all what Mark would have said. No, for sure. I mean, that that's definitely like a like a point to consider. I the the whole thing about this transaction is that it, it's expected to be scalable and serve as a blueprint for others. The sort of the TNC, what, what they said is that in theory, any any country with an, any debt trading below par can do something like this. And I I know it that there's appetite for more of it. Um, Ecuador, for example, is um, said, I think it was in, in November, um, that they were planning to do a transaction similar to, to that of Belize um, to uh, expand their the marine protected area around the Galapagos Islands. And there were uh, there were reports that a, like a bunch of banks came out and said, yes, we're, we're interested in, in participating in, in this debt swap. So I, there are more transactions in the works already, but yeah, I, I don't know how many, um, just because the, I think, as you mentioned, um, these two institutions were, were crucial uh, for this, but I, but I do think that there are others in, in the region that could play the role of like, for example, the DFC. Um, I know that like the IADB gives out like uh, guarantees um, to countries. Um, and there are, I'm sure, more environmental organizations, not um, quite as large uh, or as, um, you know, or have the, or they have the prestige that uh, TNC does, but, but maybe TNC can, can partner with them and, and train uh, them to, to help support um, conservation efforts and, and sort of do the, you know, the, the technical aspect of, of these deals in, in their respective countries. I, I actually heard uh, recently a podcast with, with Kevin Bender, which was the guy at TNC that, that sort of uh, spearheaded this whole um, police uh, blue bond restructuring. And, and that's, that's sort of what he said, that the TNC could partner with, with more local organizations or other organizations um, in order to, to scale this. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's, that's going to take some time. Uh, but at least I'm I'm optimistic like you. I think this is the first step uh, to showing that that it is possible. So me too is is definitely channeling some of my skepticism. But I, I if, for me it's helpful to separate out the restructuring context and the question of sort of who is paying for investments in the environment, whether it really is the you know investors through taking deeper haircuts or whether um, it's in fact the the country and its population. I think that question is is a really hard one, but needs to be treated separately. And, and I want to just focus on the kind of basic transaction structure, as I understand it, for the blue bonds, where the one way of looking at it is it's just another country bond, because as I understand it, it's just the it's backed only by the country's full faith and credit. And so the what makes the blue bond transaction work is because the blue bond, even though backed only by the country's revenues, is viewed as a much safer investment. And and that 
it seems to me there's two explanations for why that could be. One is the the kind of optimistic one that I think you've been alluding to, where you have the Nature Conservancy, which makes the kind of blue commitments credible, plus you've got this DFC um, political risk insurance, and those things are just those things are valuable, and and they both. Um, make the environmental commitments credible and make the investment safer. Like that's the optimistic story. The other story is just that, you know, Belize is unique in part because this deal was so important to TNC and the Development Finance Corporation. It's just unique in part because it's obviously unlikely to fail. But if it's unique, then it gets a lot harder to view this as a scalable transaction structure. So I, I guess I'm just like, I wanna hear more Carla about whether you think these implicit guarantees or whatever we wanna call the political risk insurance that DFC offers, it, is it really worth that much to investors or are they just looking at this deal and saying, all right, this was carefully vetted. And so this one is probably a heck of a lot safer than a straight up Belizean bond. Well, I, I don't think I can speak for, for investors, uh, but I think that one thing to point out here is that the investor types were, were different. So um, the, the investors that bought this new blue bond weren't traditional EM investors that would have looked at, at a, a Belize deal. These were, you know, uh, pension funds, asset managers, uh, more investment grade investors. But can, uh, can I interject for for just a second? Like, but but for the political risk insurance and the promise to do ocean related stuff, isn't it in its economic substance a Belizean bond? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, uh, yes. Um, but then again, the the DFC. Um, sort of insurance allowed them to, to issue this bond to this other subset of, of investors, right? Could I just get in for one sec? The, yeah. um, I, I thought more about this recently, because at first when I heard about this, I said, risk doesn't disappear. This is essentially exactly what you're saying. It's a Belizean bond. Belize is a high risk country. They're essentially conning AA investors into buying a, <laughs> you know, double B bond or whatever, a single B bond. Um, but, um, and, and, you know, giving some, some very hard to implement guarantees uh, to, to make that work. Um, you know, if they, and if those fail, if those don't end up working out for these double A investors, then it'll be, this will be the only time it ever works, right? Just like any con. But, um, but I've actually changed my mind a little bit about that, or at least open to another possibility, which is that risk comes from what? Willingness and capacity, right? And this could increase their willingness to pay, regardless of what happens in the future in the Belizean parliament, because they've basically got Uncle Sam breathing down their neck for the, over this guarantee. And that's a really big influence in Belize. And it can also increase capacity if, this, if these environmental investments happen and make Belize, uh, you know, it protects the reefs and makes it a continued popular and beautiful tourist destination, maybe a better and better tourist destination or better and better fishing destination or whatever. Um, so I actually think that there's some possibility there. I don't know if that's how people are thinking about it, but that's kind of the, to me, the optimistic view right now. So just, just to push a little bit on this, but 
um, to connect also to something that Carla said that maybe Carla would have a view on. So when I think about the credibility that Belize, I mean, it's just hard for me to see Belize being credible on its own uh, about right. doing stuff, given that they, I mean, they, they, how many times have they defaulted in the last 15 years? Only five? Uh, they, they're not going to do shit. Um, but maybe the Nature Conservancy can, can be credible in terms of getting things done. But this then connects to Ecuador. I, I mean, I've worked uh, on Ecuador transactions before. I wouldn't believe anything they're, they're promising to do. This, this, to me, this, the, me the investors who are being asked to give, <laughs> to give them extra money because they're not going to burn down the forest or something like that. This, this is just, uh, no, I, I mean, if I were holding that debt, that, that's not where I'd, I'd provide the money. And I'm not sure the Nature Conservancy uh, unless it had really credible boots on the ground and connections within the government that I hear they had in Belize, uh, could persuade me that really good things are going to happen. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I mean, uh, you guys are persuading me to be really pessimistic uh, about this, to go into the Mark camp. So I'm hoping uh, you will uh, help me come back to my optimistic view. and and. You know, one of the aspects of, to bring this back to uh, Venezuela as well as, uh, when I read that FT piece, at the back of my mind, I was thinking, if I'm an investor holding crappy Venezuelan bonds that are, you know, trading on cents on the dollar and keep going down, and then I read this FT piece and about how the current government is destroying the environment. And then I hear a podcast where they're saying, oh, yeah, investors are going to be enthusiastic about giving additional relief to protect the Venezuelan uh, environment. I'm the investor. I'm thinking, no, that's that, this is not you're not taking more money out of my pocket because you're as I watch my bonds drop in value, you're destroying the environment more to get even more value out of me. So please correct me, guys. But this, this is none of this is looking like it's going to end up in a very positive place. We don't know where it's going. But like you said, Venezuelan bonds are under 10 cents, as far as I know, at least the Petavesa ones. Um, yeah, I think last I heard, they were all under 10 cents. So we're not talking about relief here. I mean, the people who are buying it five cents on the dollar aren't going to be asked to take a haircut. Um, you know, the, the restructuring in Venezuela, when I talk to people about it, no one is talking about like whether they're going to be um, taking 40 cents or 50 cents on the dollar, or 30 cents or 40 cents. It's always about what assets they're going to try to get, right? What kinds of, what kinds of equity deals they're going to try to get out of Venezuela. Um, and usually that relates to oil. And I mean, I don't know how that lines up with a green bond <laughs> because we're at a point where increased oil production worldwide um, may be needed to, for economic stability, but I don't know how much more we can really do without uh, burning down the planet. So I don't know. I don't know how that works. What do you think, Carla? I'm, I think I, I'm in the same spot. Um, but just, just what, what you mentioned me too about the, the sort of, you know, the, the Ecuadorian government and, you know, it's, it's not credible. I think, uh, I guess 
an interesting aspect of the of the Belize deal, under at least under the conservation funding agreement, I think, is that there's going to be this this sort of independent board with, um, you know, the government's going to sit in it, but there's going to be um, other other stakeholders, um, and they're going to sort of manage the funds that the government is supposed to to contribute right to this to this account. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, um, there um, could be some credibility that that you know TNC or whoever works on this on this Ecuador deal um, could uh, you know could enforce right or or that these um, targets could be could be met. That's just something that that came to my mind right now that I I had not. Mentioned. And there's there's another piece of this, which is that. I think that these kinds of bonds of the ESG mentality generally is less about coercing a, com a country or company into doing something that it wouldn't otherwise do. And it's more about rewarding positive initiatives that it kind of wants to do anyway. Uh, and I think that a future Venezuelan government, in fact, the current Venezuelan government probably would really like to end the deforestation and clean up the oil industry, but doesn't have the money to do it. Um, and instead uh, is willing to sacrifice the country, unfortunately. Um, but I think any future government is probably going to have some environmental consciousness. And if, this, if the investment world can offer a little bit better terms on bonds and on restructuring um, in return for those being kind of locked in commitments, then you know, that's probably win-win, right? That's probably better for everybody, um, but uh, it's, you know, you're not going to see, um, I don't know, like, you know, you're not going to have ExxonMobil becoming a solar company because some bondholders offered a quarter point better, you know, on its, on its bond. Right. I mean, and you're not going to have Venezuela just give up the oil industry, um, because of a quarter point benefit on its bonds. It's, it's not, that's just not going to happen because that's where the money is. So, so. Carla and Stephen, we should probably start wrapping up. We've taken up a bunch of your time, but I wanted to just link a couple of uh, of the things that you said in in asking one final question. So Carla had been talking um, in part about the kind of credibility that TNC brings, and, and Stephen, um, you know, you're sort of asking about whether investors would reward a, a country for doing environmental stuff. And, and so this is the, the question that I, I kind of separated out earlier, the, the question of who's paying for this stuff. Um, and I think that question really matters in the context of a restructuring because like the early stories and the most optimistic stories that came out of Belize went something like this. You know, the investors were insisting on 60, 60 cents on the dollar and the buyback. And then, you know, they were presented with this magical, shimmering, beautiful idea of, you know, well, we can do a deal in connection with this blue bond where you take 55. And they were, they were wowed by the their opportunity to contribute an additional five cents on the dollar to, to fixing, helping to fix the, the climate problem. And so they did. And, and I've always found that story to be completely hokey. And so the broader question, I guess, is do investors 
in any context, inside or outside of a restructuring. And I, I know I keep asking you to pin motivations and beliefs on investors, but I, I don't care. That's what I that's what I feel like doing. Do they care enough to actually put real money behind these things? Because if not, then we're just talking the quarter point here and there. And who really cares? What do you think? I think I think some of them do actually. Um, as I mentioned, uh, at least during the, the Ecuador and the the Argentina restructuring, I I know that um, it was a similar thing where where at least some investors were expecting to, you know, they were willing to to concede um, if if Ecuador um, implemented some ESG aspect to to their to the restructuring. But yeah, it's it's different from from the Belize deal in that I'm not sure that that the investors that bought this debt at par are the same that that were um, you know uh, involved in in the restructuring, right? Um, so they probably bought the the you know the debt at like I don't know 38, 40 cents on the dollar. So they they made money off of this, um, and so they both made money and looked good because there was this ESG component, right? So I, I think it's it's different <laughs> uh, depending I, on, on the transaction. I, I think that's right. I, I would add that there is a demand in the market for ESG stuff. Yeah. Um, I just was listening to uh, Economist Intelligence Unit um, expert talking the other day, saying that Latin America uh, is has provided only I think five percent of the sovereign ESG debt in the world. Um, so there's money out there looking for a place to go. And there are a lot of people who want to feel good about their retirement fund and a lot of retirement funds who have made ESG commitments. Um, as long, and, and as more of those grow and people pull more money away from the more generalist funds, then you know, that, changes the, that changes the incentives. Stephen and Carla, can, can I just, I, I know we have to wrap, but I want to just ask a clarification because I'm slow uh, and some of this is, doesn't make, just, um, I haven't added it up yet. So let, let's say, so you're telling me that there are these different uh, sets of investors or there are different pools of money. There, there's the there's the bad money, the, the typical distressed debt investor, let's call them the bad money, who wouldn't you know, give uh, one cent uh, or a few basis points to save their grandmother. And, the, and, and then there, there's the sort of virtuous pool of money that really wants to look for uh, the virtuous investments, that they, they care about helping the environment. So I, I, as I simplify, what you suggested, I, I, I think of that. And that, the fact that we have this virtuous money means that we should be a little bit optimistic uh, that positive things can happen. Now, the confusion or my worry is that if I am in the virtuous 
pool and I have control of the virtuous pool, then it's not clear to me why should I why I should have anything to do with debt restructuring. I want to help preserve the coral reefs and I got a few hundred million dollars I'm willing to spend on coral reefs. I'm just going to go over there and help preserve the coral reefs. The connection to the debt restructuring happens because of the claim that is made uh, by the people involved in the deal that, look, we got a few more cents on the dollar from the people holding the distressed debt, not that they were different people. Uh, and so because if it's different people, then the arguments are, are quite uh, separate and not clear that they're connected to restructuring. Am I, is, it, is that clear, Stephen, Carla? I guess. Uh, again, I, 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 I'm happy to clarify. More I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't know. Like we don't. I, I think it's yeah. people don't tell us that. <laughs> people. <laughs> the, people. No one. I, there are people we talk to who say. I mean, Carla, to correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think there are people who just say that they actually don't. They are not going to be moved one way or the other by these things, and other people who. Um, are definitely looking for ESG investments. As far as people in the distressed world, I don't know. Um, yeah. Um, it's maybe a little, I mean, it's certainly good for marketing, you know, and that's something, especially on a smaller fund. Uh, I, I mean, I, I just the other day, I came across um, an organization that's pressuring one of the biggest US pension funds because it found that uh, they were buying some climate unfriendly investment, right? And their members are organizing to um, to pressure the investment managers to get rid of these climate unfriendly investments. So, uh, I, you know, if they, it, it, that that's I think that all these little pressures they add up. I whenever people say that nothing Wall Street does really matters because money's fungible. There's so many funds out there doing different things. Um, there will always be someone to invest in the worst stuff. I keep going back to the fact that tech, this giant mining company, uh, canceled an oil sands project in Canada. Um, I think it was in 2018. Um, and it said, or 2019, it said that it was because it, the financial markets weren't going to fund this kind of project right now. So it tells me that Wall Street's general move toward ESG stuff has had some real world impact and probably will continue to. I don't know. What do you think, Carla? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic. I, I think so too. Um, and about, you know, what you mentioned me too about, you know, the sort of like good money or, or you know, bad money. Like I, I, yeah, I, I just, I don't think we can assign like, like say money is good or bad. Like these investors are just answering to like their mandates, right? So um, I don't know, for like a like an asset manager, uh, like, I don't know, let's say Amundi that invests in the emerging markets. Yeah, there's like a mandate to, you know, invest in, in the ESG stuff. Whereas, I don't know, like a, like a smaller uh, fund that invests in, in distressed uh, stuff, uh, you know, maybe wouldn't have that. But I, I don't know, that doesn't make them like good or bad. Um, but yeah, that, that was the sort of difference that I, that I was talking to, like a smaller versus like a, a bigger one, if that makes sense. Well, guys, thank you so much for, for joining us. I'm, 
I am, I don't know if I'm more optimistic or less optimistic or more skeptical or less skeptical. I am more informed. And so that's a good, <laughs> that is at least, that is at least a good thing. Um, uh, but we really appreciate having had the chance to, to talk to you both and um, look forward to, to continuing the conversation. Thank you.